Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast series, exploring the strategies and challenges of building a resilient cyber defense for federal government agencies and DOD. In this series, we will speak with subject matter experts from the federal government in the fields of cybersecurity, information technology, and cyber readiness. Topics covered will include zero trust, mobility, vulnerability management, asset discovery, and more. We'll also discuss the role of emerging technologies and enhancing cyber defenses. My name is Bill Herod. I'm the public sector CTO for Avanti. Avanti is a US-based enterprise software company with a mission to help federal agencies discover, secure, manage, and service your IT assets and to enable the everywhere workplace. Over the last few years, Avanti has brought together solutions for IT security, including Pulse Secure for VPN and network access controls, Mobile Irons mobile device management, IT asset and service management solutions, and RiskSense for risk-based vulnerability management. The vision for Avanti is to bring together these solutions, converging security, unified endpoint management, and IT service management to deliver a superior solution of digital employee experience, security, risk-based vulnerability management, and IT service management to support your agency and your employees wherever they work from and to secure the mission of the US government. For more information, visit us at avanti.com. That's I-V-A-N-T-I.com. Today's episode is focused on cybersecurity threats, intelligence, and attack vectors. And I have the pleasure of speaking with Asta Verma. Asta is the chief of CISA's cybersecurity division, United States Department of Homeland Security. Asta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. This is certainly a subject matter I care deeply about. And just a a quick adjustment, I am a branch chief within the cybersecurity division, and it it happens to tie perfectly to this topic because the division I come from is vulnerability management. So I happen to know a thing or two about trying to be proactive in the space. Absolutely. And Asta, you have become quite the spokesperson for vulnerability management at CISA. Can you tell us a little bit about what your role at at CISA entails? Absolutely. You know, my fit in the government space is quite unique. And I talk about this when I'm on the road a bit because it's not often you will find mid-career professionals like myself who are in industry decide to come to the government. And for me, it was a very specific decision after having been in industry for better part of two decades and having solved many challenges of many kinds across many different environments, whether they were startups or or large enterprises. What was very interesting is that CISA is a young agency. We were only founded a few years ago. And so for us to establish ourselves in this space, while cyber itself is a very fast paced and fast changing environment, it has been a tough call for this agency to keep up and to actually build itself and scale itself to where it needs to be to address all of the needs that we have across the nation. So they were recruiting individuals like myself from the industry who had experience in running large projects or in coordinating large efforts or building coalitions or bringing new emerging technology into these spaces. Cyber can be quite insular sometimes. And so I found a fresh challenge to come to the government and to apply my skill sets and talents here 
And I'm happy to say that in vulnerability management, we are often the first place to go when trying to solve cyber challenges, right? We are the protective, proactive stance within cyber. And vulnerability management is really all about understanding your attack surface well enough to know where you are vulnerable. And my role at that at that division and in my capacity is to build the infrastructure that helps to accomplish the kinds of various scans that we do, to, to bring in the data different data feeds that we have from various partners, to try to make sense of what we're seeing across the attack surface, and then to try to create the right mechanisms to work with our stakeholders to mitigate those vulnerabilities. And it's a variety of different ways in which we tackle the space with a variety of different kinds of scans, whether they be cyber hygiene scans or remote penetration testing, sometimes even fancier things like red teaming and blue teaming. And all of that is in an attempt to try to solidify and strengthen infrastructure across the government. But it's not just across the government. We also try to work with industry to try to take many of our ideas and concepts and have them propagate out towards industry as well, because cyber isn't just about protecting the government space. It's about protecting the entirety of our working, uh, of our working world, really. That's absolutely right. And, uh, and those are all things that we're going to drive, drill into a bit more as we talk today. But before we jump further into our conversation, Asta, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are your interests outside of, of DHS and outside of work? I've been quite passionate on STEM. Right. If, if you are if you are a woman in engineering, and certainly I've been in, in this field now for several decades, so you've seen the evolution. Uh, when I started, there were not that many women in engineering still, and and today that is entirely different. You know, today we have many many more women who are participating at every level, and even even in government, you'll find that there are positions of leadership now that are extended, or or leadership positions that are being held by by women. And so I think being a woman, a minority woman in this field is its own challenge. And, and I like to talk about that challenge. I like to talk about that challenge because hopefully there are others like me who want to either make this kind of career choice change or they're in college, they're young, and they're trying to figure themselves out. And I am very passionate in working with those groups. I'm active with my alumni organization back at the university. My alma mater happens to be University of Maryland. So I'm a very local product here in the Washington, D.C. area. And so I would say that definitely remains a passion. Beyond that, you know, like all, like all folks, I try to get the heck out of Dodge when the world gets crazy. I'm definitely very active. I try to keep a well, you know, healthy life work balance. But it is a challenge in cyber because it's nonstop. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, as the father of two daughters and, and grandfather of four granddaughters, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in STEM and uh, and the STEM the the technology and uh, and math education curriculum all the way down to to the earliest level. So so that's great. So Asa, one of the initiatives that you're working on at CISA is the joint collaborative environment, and it sounds like this is actually beginning to roll out now. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what it means for for DHS and for federal agencies, and and as you said, even private sector partners. Sure, would love to talk about this this project. To call it a project feels a bit unfair. It's almost a sweeping culture change that we're trying to accomplish by virtue of creating this initiative. Let me tell you a little bit about where this initiative began. 
for those of us that have lived in cyber, actually lived in technology, uh, we all heard about an event called SolarWinds. And when SolarWinds happened a few years ago, right at the start of COVID, it really changed our landscape. We realized we were vulnerable in ways we didn't realize we were and to the extent that we were. And when that cyber attack happened, it affected multiple agencies. And that forced a harsh look at our own networks, our own resiliency. And Congress got involved. They wanted to know why this went as far as it did in, in penetrating our, our networks and such. And so they created a commission called the Solarium Commission, and they investigated. And what they generated in their Solarium Commission report in 2020 really told us what we thought it would tell us, which is that we are a fractured landscape. And in many cases, our data is siloed up. It's not shared as well as it could be. And even the pathways to share that data aren't there as, as well as they should be, well established as they should be. So out of this Solarium Commission was born this idea of creating a joint collaborative environment. Basically, it's an ecosystem, an ecosystem where agencies and uh, partnerships, we want to try to reach more than just the government with this effort. So it's about creating an ecosystem that allows us to share data easier between agencies, but also between the various different participants of our tech ecosystem. All of us participate in some shape or form in our cyber universe, but a lot of it is really like the wild, wild west. And to the outside observer, it might seem like technology is, is well harnessed or, or well planned, well executed. In reality, it's not. You have, you have a lot of independent siloed technology stacks that kind of operate on their own without really an oversight or overarching governance to them. And because of that lack of governance, and it's not for any fault, it's that we are growing so fast. We're going so fast to try to keep up with all of the different types of uh, vulnerabilities that are out there and, and, and threat actors that are acting in different ways that we've done essentially what's called Tetris development. We've stacked needs right on top of each other. And in the process, we've built a pretty brittle network. Mm -hmm. And whenever, whenever someone gets a hold of that brittle network in the right way, as SolarWinds did, the results can be catastrophic, as they were. So the purpose of this very large effort called the Joint Collaborative Environment is to take all of our, our agencies as a start point, including CISA, my own agency, which plays a very pivotal role. We are in the coordination chair, if you will, of trying to make this happen. Uh, it's an effort to stand up an ecosystem that allows data to come in at the point of ingest. Now think of that data. What is that data? That data is a lot of scanning data. Scanning data that are done either automated or activities where we CISA or others go out and collect data, that data ultimately needs to land in some environment to be processed, to be analyzed by the right analysts, those who really know what to look for in those data patterns. Unfortunately, that ecosystem really doesn't exist. The ability to bring in data, have analysts look at it from different agencies, make their conclusions, generate knowledge, and then disseminate that knowledge back out to everyone who participates in our ecosystem, we just simply don't have that. Mm -hmm. And this environment is the first time agencies across the Intel community, across the FSEB, which is the federal civilian executive branches, or within the uh, SLTT, which is our state, territorial, tribal, basically the entire gamut 
even before you get to the public-private citizen, right? Private industry. Every single one of those players has something to benefit and gain from us standing up this ecosystem where knowledge can be quickly amassed, assessed, and shared back out. So you've got partnerships here between Department of Defense agencies. You've got partnership here with civilian agencies. And they're all trying to do the same thing. They're trying to share their data in a way that allows us to get in front of these kinds of attacks like SolarWinds. I hope that gives you a broad flavor of what this effort is. It is nascent, as in this report came out in 2020. All the agencies have reacted to it, including our own. And we are now actively trying to build this ecosystem. And of course, as you know, these things can't be stood up overnight. Um, however, there's a lot of you connect it in a way that makes it easier for us to do this kind of data munging, data analysis, and to disseminate the knowledge that we gain from it. Well, that's really fascinating. And, and the data sharing has long been a, a concern, particularly from, from DOD to non-DOD agencies, from financial agencies to, to other regulatory industries. So, so how will the ecosystem, the joint collaborative environment, how does it address confidentiality and, and privacy concerns across those, those disparate, what we traditionally have held as silos, DOD and, and civilian agencies and state and local government, and then, and then private regulatory agencies or, or industry? That is an excellent question. And I'm glad that you asked that question. One of the hardest challenges, you would think this would be easy. You have data, you share it, right? What could be so hard about that? Except the point that you brought up. All of our agencies have been given different authorities. We don't all have the same authorities to go and find data or to share that data. And that was done very specifically in an effort to be protected. For example, CIS, which is my agency, has authorities that really govern over the FSEP, which is the Federal Civilian Executive Branch. Now, through partnerships, we've also reached out to private industry, but we are fiercely protective of their data. We have the ability to scan domestically, and so we, we do a lot of the scanning on ourselves as government, and then the rest of the scanning that we take on in our capacity with our authorities is really by volunteership. In other words, private industry has signed up and agreed to share their data with us by volunteering to share their data with us, which means we as an agency have an obligation to protect their data. And as you can imagine, a lot of private industry has reservations when it comes to sharing their data with government. They don't want Big Brother watching. They don't want to have to give up uh, critical PII information, uh, which is person information, right? It, information that would allow an individual to actually be exposed in some capacity. We want to be very, very protected when it comes to PII, when it comes to sensitive data. So building in the right safeguards, making sure that we have access control throughout, making sure that only those audiences that are supposed to see our data are the only ones that can see it, is a whole part of setting up this ecosystem correctly. It is not just a free-for-all sharing of data. It is a very curated, careful sharing of data between agencies in an effort to try to help each other. But we're very cognizant that those authorities exist for a reason. And therefore, we have to guard our posture as far as the authorities we have, but also be willing to share that data when it makes sense. And when incidents like solar winds happen, 
it makes sense to share that data. We just have to be very careful about how we share it. That's why we need the ecosystem, because that ecosystem helps us to do it by having those safeguards in place, by having those pathways established and built so that when we are at that moment of crisis, we know exactly what to use and how to use it to communicate clearly and without risk as far as the data that we are sharing. So, Asta, what are the top threats and, and attacks that you're seeing so far? That's a great question. It speaks to some of what we're seeing from CISO's perspective, but clearly this is a very large problem. And so there are many agencies experiencing many kinds of attacks that happen all the time, right? I can tell you this. If you look over the last several years, especially as you look at the COVID year, what you saw were some amazing things happen during that time. First of all, when we all went home to work from home, we started using these applications a lot more, even the one that we're using now, right, really wasn't in our mainstream usage the way it is now. And yet now we're all using Teams and Zoom and every other form of communication that's out there. We're in a remote posture a lot of the time. So what you're seeing is a spike, a very heavy spike in the use of technology over the last couple of years, which is quite intuitive. At the same time, you've seen a rapid rise in certain types of attacks. Now, you mentioned phishing early on in your, your introduction, and I can tell you that phishing still remains the primary way in for bigger attacks. Phishing is usually the first of a series of attacks. It's the way in. It's, it's the way that people first get tricked in some capacity, right? And those of you who are familiar with phishing, you know what that is. It's an email that shows up looking legit in your inbox that makes you have a certain call to action or invites you to have a call to action. And as soon as you click, you've been popped or you've been somehow compromised because of that click. It's a very scary thought. And part of CISA's objective is to help people understand that their own social behaviors can contribute to that risk. Right, clicking on a phishing link if you don't know what phishing is, is a problem. So certainly there's a training element to this. But going back to the broader point, during that time, during the COVID years, we saw the big spikes in the use of technology. We saw big spikes in the use of phishing campaigns. But really where you saw the biggest hit was in ransomware. Ransomware became the largest rising type of threat. And it basically went after anyone and everyone. It didn't matter if you were a mom and pop shop, you're, you know, suddenly your, your, your data holdings were encrypted and you had to pay a ransom to get it back. You could also be a very large critical infrastructure provider like Colonial Pipeline. They became the poster child for a ransomware attack, but they weren't the only ones. You'd be shocked perhaps to know which was, which was the segment most affected by ransomware during the COVID years. You might be surprised to learn that it was healthcare. Why do you think that is? Well, during COVID, we all got sick. We all went to the doctor. We all filled out those forms at the doctor's office and gave away a whole bunch of our PII and everything else in the process, right? So doctor's offices, hospitals, clinics became a rich repository of people and people information. People information that became worth a lot out on the dark web. So that is just one example of where ransomware spiked, continues to spike, and really goes after anyone and everyone, whether you're a private citizen or a big giant enterprise. And now they're going more and more after critical infrastructure, where one hit to one colonial pipeline takes out thousands and thousands of people. 
who benefit from that service. So I would say that is one of the biggest challenges that we have that we're facing, still are facing. And I would say there's also a lot of fear and concern now about new emerging technologies, things like AI that have certainly showed up, to which we still don't exactly know how to wrap our heads around this new problem of AI, which is both a benefit and could also be the source of different kinds of attack vectors. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think one of the parallels between healthcare and and the federal government or government overall is the reliance on legacy technology. You know, much of healthcare still runs on operating systems and, and platforms that are no longer being that are no longer current, no longer being patched for emerging vulnerabilities. And and unfortunately, the the tech debt in the federal government parallels that in many ways. Absolutely. So so how can the how can the ecosystem, the joint collaborative environment, help to provide some controls, particularly for that legacy technology? Good question. Let me go back to talk about that just a little bit. Legacy technology certainly is a contributor. There's no doubt about that. Interestingly enough, having been on some of these panels with the healthcare side of the house, you have two symptoms kind of happening simultaneously. Actually, there's only many symptoms, but two key symptoms are, one, you have a lot of small businesses in healthcare. Essentially, doctor's offices are kind of like small businesses. They don't have the luxury of large IT budgets or IT staff, nor are they really subject matter experts, right? So how are they going to know to go after the latest technology? How do they even know what the latest technology is versus what they've got? right? They're purchasing a lot of those things as commodities. Uh, the second issue is if you ask large hospitals, where are they going to spend their money? They're going to try to spend it on saving human lives. They're not thinking cyber, right? They're not recognizing that cyber is as big a threat as and in requirement and in need of investment, the same as you would want to make investments into improving lives of people who come who are sick in your hospital, right? So a CIO, if they're forced to make a choice, is going to not pick cyber more than likely. They're going to pick the, the new technology that helps their all of those that are coming to the hospital for healthcare. Mm -hmm. So it creates a, a dichotomy of choice. Where do you put your money? And that is a problem in the healthcare uniquely, right? Because they're always going to have split priorities between trying to protect the data with cyber or invest that money in protecting lives. So Let's take that problem into the government. Yes, we also have a tech debt problem. Any, any environment where you are forced to iterate and expand and scale in a hurry, as we have done in the world of cyber, you're going to end up with tech debt, and you're going to end up with operational maintenance of older software. The challenge for us, and part of the reason why I call JCE a culture change, is that we have to get better at a couple of things. We have to get better at planning our infrastructure for the future and not just reacting. Right now, a lot of our, our ability to, to build out our network has to do with trying to respond to something or react to something. We're not necessarily building future resilient infrastructure. Part of what JCE is trying to do is establish an ecosystem that is resilient towards the future. And by example, if we can do that, I think we can accomplish the culture change that's needed even at the smaller granular or agency level so that those agencies can self-evolve and self-iterate out of their tech debt problems. Most agencies have gotten complacent maybe with their architectures because 
they haven't yet been hit by some kind of cyber attack. But as soon as they are, they're forced into that recognition and into that posture pretty quickly. So why wait for an event to happen? In our case, the event already happened. It was called SolarWinds, and we have to react quickly. Now we're taking what came out of that experience and trying to build the culture back in so that we are looking forward and not just simply being reactive, which means having to make our investments differently for future technology. So that's really interesting. And, and you mentioned at the beginning that, that SolarWinds was sort of the nexus for, for the JCE, for the Joint Collaborative Environment. And, and SolarWinds was, at least in part, um, a, a software supply chain attack. So how will, how will CISA, how will the JCE help to bubble that up as, as an attack vector? Excellent point. One of the things that came out of SolarWinds, as you said, was this understanding that we have to get better at knowing where our software is built, who's building it. Uh, that effort, that school of practice is called Software Build of Material, or SBOM, right? This idea is not new. If you've ever been in manufacturing, bombs are pretty, pretty normal, build of materials, right? So when it comes to buying software, often we're not checking to see who actually built the software that lives on the chip, that lives on the board, that lives in the piece of equipment you buy, or is downloaded from some site. What actually went into the construction of that software? What libraries were used in building that software? We don't trace those things back far enough. And so consequently, what you've done is you've left yourself open to a supply chain problem where some of those bad actors can enter the supply chain right at the beginning, right at the construction of that software, which goes into so many different products that we end up purchasing. So because of SolarWinds, and really maybe before SolarWinds occurred, that just kind of forced it to the forefront, you have schools of practice like SBOM, you have schools of practice like Secure by Design, or secure by default. These are, again, culture shifts that we are trying to make happen in the industry, forcing even, forcing not just government, but forcing industry to think about where are you getting your products? Where are you purchasing them? Are you purchasing them from places where nefarious actors could live? Are you validating what software is in your environment? Now, in order to make this, in order to affect this universe, you need years of data or at least you need enough data to know how to go after a problem. We're trying to gather that data now so that we can actually look at it, assess it, and make the right recommendations. Put the right guard rails up, if you will. Go back to industry with recommendations. And some of that you're seeing. From CISA's perspective, one, one thing I can point to is the creation of cyber performance goals, or CPGs, for the critical infrastructure sector, right? Why did we do that? To your point, sir, there is a lot of legacy tech and tech debt living inside of critical, critical infrastructure environments. These are your power plants. These are your, your service providers, your, your water treatment facilities. They are under attack. Your power grid is under attack. And it's because they also have old infrastructure and old technology. So creating a new standard, if you will, a new set of goals forces them to have to also evaluate their internal networks and do it proactively, not when an incident has happened, but proactively before an incident happens. 
I think that's a really good point. And uh, and as you said, you know, we we need to trace back those components of software to understand what is there and and the reuse of things like Log4j, which we also saw to be a uh, an endemic problem across all all parts of public sector, private sector industry. All of that has been, you know, again, it goes back to understanding what the what the software is and what we're sharing. So let's let's talk for just a second. How does the the joint collaborative environment and and what you're doing? How does that interact with the rest of CISA? And and how does that fit with the the binding operational directives? You know, twenty two oh one and twenty three oh one. How how does that mesh together? We we come up with bugs in an effort to try to get our agencies moving in the right direction. Unfortunately, CISA doesn't have the ability to to punish anyone for not following suit. Right? We can we can we can create directives and and we can assess those directives and we can go back to the various agencies to say you're out of compliance or you know you've got by X date to meet this binding operational directive. CISA uh, is in many ways, at least for JCE, the coordinating body. I mentioned this earlier on. Now, I come from the cybersecurity division, but really I'm representing CISA, right? Cybersecurity division might be ultimately the responsible party for helping to build the ecosystem, but its impact is wide and large. Certainly to the rest of CISA, because CISA has two parts in his name. It's cybersecurity, infrastructure security, right? That infrastructure security in there, in our name, is equally important. And that is where we are trying to make a heavy dent, if you will, in trying to help our cyber posture. So these binding operational directives, when they come out, they're often directed at the federal civilian executive branches because that's where we really have our authority. That's where really we can do something more to scan their networks and tell them where they're vulnerable or not. That doesn't apply to the rest of the universe. I can't put a BOD out there, or CISA can't, to make DOD agencies compliant, right? There, there's no such mechanism to do that. However, what is in the BODs themselves, whether it is the ability to, to look deeper in their networks or to look, look passively at their networks without necessarily them having to send us materials, we're doing a continuous scan or a the ability for us to, to look deeper within their networks to get information instead of just a surface level scan. That's what some of these bots do. They give us deeper authorities or they give us deeper ability to access, but it's still only a portion that we're able to do it with. So the reason for the collaborative environment to exist is we can't solve the problem alone. We clearly need to partner up with DOD and the other agencies. We clearly need to partner up with industry because they have pools of data too. Question is their data correlated with our data can tell us some pretty powerful stuff. We don't have a good mechanism of creating those correlations today. And that's what this environment is intended to do. Will it ultimately result in more bogs? Absolutely. Like, will it actually result in our ability to make greater recommendations, kind of like we did with the cyber performance goals for the critical infrastructure sector? Absolutely. That is where we're gonna have to go in order to get everyone to implement the same kinds of safeguards to help the overall universal picture. Well, an editorial comment, I think the BODs are effective. And I think the BODs are effective across not only the federal civilian agencies, 
but are being picked up by DOD. They're looking at those and state and local government as well. And, and so I applaud the BODs. I think they're, uh, they are more agile. They're quicker to come out. And, and I think they have some, some actual impact. You know, earlier you mentioned AI, artificial intelligence, and we think of, of emerging technologies. AI or the content generative AI is one. You mentioned the, the critical infrastructure industries. We have a lot of, of IoT and industrial IoT. And then there's, you know, 5G and 6G on the mobility side. So how will the joint collaborative environment contribute to the government's understanding of, of threats in these emerging technology spaces? It all comes down to data. It all comes down to the data we gather and we collect. And the intelligence we gather from that data is only as good as the data itself. I say that because there can be a lot of data that comes out of these new emerging technologies. In order for us to create any kind of guidelines or recommendations, we have to have enough source data to be able to look at it and make some conclusive findings. In the world of AI, for example, there's a new directive from the White House, right? There's, there's new energy on this, uh, in this arena. Why? Because ChatGPT suddenly was uh, put out for public consumption, right? Now, there's a case of where you've got technology that is now put into the average person's hands. And whether or not that average person has a solid understanding of what they're looking at and the information they're getting is a significant challenge because the assumption is what you get out of AI is always correct. And that's mm. not true. That is not true. There's a saying in the technology world, if you work with data, is if you have garbage in, it's garbage out, right? I'm not saying that AI has that problem, but recognize that the world of AI is quite complicated because it sources itself on public data that lives out on the internet that can be swept up and therefore utilized in the form of intelligence. However, comma, it is full of biases or it can be full of biases. So it is not by itself a solution to many problems. And in fact, it can also be the source of many new kinds of threats that we've never faced before. And so I think this is going to be a significant challenge. Where the joint collaborative environment can help is by getting in front of these technologies to understand what goes into constructing them, how they operate, how they are best used, and to try to get ahead of the public consumption of these tools in a way that people understand what they should be used for, what they can be used for, and where they can be problematic to use or where they can cause or add to the risk. I think a bigger challenge for us going forward is that when technology was left to the big enterprises or to the work environment, it was one kind of challenge. When it crosses over into your everyday existence through social media or through your everyday tools that not just you and I are using because we're in the technology space, but my mom is using to talk to her grandkids, that's when you have a problem. Because if, if these threats make it to that realm, it's hitting a population of people least equipped to understand those challenges. So for us, we have to get there as fast as we can with the data we can collect to try to get ahead of the technology curve on this. I think AI is a significant challenge in that direction. 
your other about we're adding new devices all the time. We're adding to our IoT all the time, right? And that's not gonna that's not gonna get that that complexity is not gonna get less over time. It's only gonna become more complex over time. So how do you how do you create a scalable system that can keep up with all that amount of data and all those new devices, right? Because each person now is walking around with two or three, not just one. And in the future, they might be walking around with many more devices. And when you go home, your appliances might be talking to each other. So you've got all of this hyper-connectivity, but not a lot of control. So I think the more we can do to influence industry, more we can do to influence the consumption of technology at the human level, the more data that we can correlate to point to those risks so that we can create knowledge and really protective guidance. That is the tall order for JCE, is to try to do it all faster so that we can get to those recommendations and to help put those protective measures in place faster and before another big solar wind happens. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And, and again, I think one of the things that people writ large don't understand is what they give up in, in using these technologies, IoT, content generative AI, you know, the, the amount of personal information that is shared and, and can be harvested and reused is, is significant. And again, it goes back to your, your point at the beginning of the pandemic, where we uh, provided a lot of information to healthcare providers, and then some of that information gets gets breached or released. And it's not the specific single entity piece of data, but it is the aggregation of that data across across large systems that really becomes a threat. You know, one of Avanti's solutions is known as RiskSense. It's a risk-based vulnerability management solution that helps to prioritize which vulnerabilities need to be addressed first. It's based on the threat vector, the likelihood of an exploit, the overall risk to, to an agency and, and their IT assets, and their level of patch maturity. And one of the key differentiators is that Avanti helps agencies prioritize vulnerabilities based on what is actively being exploited in the wild in real time. So we'll Will the JCE be including that sort of data in the analysis that, that it provides? I think we would love to get to the point where it could be real time. It's, it's hard to do when you are cross-collaborating across agencies to be real time <laughs> for all the reasons, right? I mentioned early on, we have to be really protective with what data we share and how we share it. So oftentimes, uh, you're dealing with a data set at a time, right? And, and you're coming in after the fact. Your point about making it real-time and making it risk-based is really important. Ultimately, that is where we're trying to go. If we understand the risks well enough, then clearly we would incentivize building our protective measures against those risks. And I think we do that at a small scale today. I don't know when I say small as, as in we are doing that in our independent little world that we live in. We're not sharing it at a mass level. And therefore, we are not well-coordinated as agencies, perhaps, as we could be on some of these efforts. So we're all kind of tackling them on our own as independent agencies, 
there's not often the ability to get together and look at this shared space and then come up with those joint efforts where they may exist. That's, again, something that the JCE will help make happen. And, and as you all, as you know, having done this work in, in your field, momentum builds when you have success. And what we're hoping is that by showing the power of this collaboration with different data sets, that the momentum to share and to collaborate will become a snowball effect. People will want to share this information. People will see the value of sharing this information. And pretty soon, if you're not sharing this information, you're, you're on the outskirts. You're in the periphery. You're not participating as you should be. So I think there is a tremendous opportunity we have to try to get to the point where it is real time. I can share that I think we are trying to get there. I don't know that we're there quite yet. Although I think many of our scans get as close to real time as we, as we can get because we want to try to be as left of boom, as they say, as we can be. And you're absolutely right. We do our own homework as far as doing cyber hygiene scans, knowing known vulnerabilities, known exploited vulnerabilities. We have a CAD catalog that is tied into our vulnerabilities that we, our CVEs that we pull out, which are the critical vulnerabilities and exploits that we can find. All of that information is packaged up and given to agencies so that they can better protect themselves, so that they have a better understanding of what their risk is and can make informed decisions. But you're 100% right. Ultimately, it involves us having a solid understanding of the risk, where it lives, and then collaborating on what mitigated measures can tackle that risk in joint way, not just in a single singular effort across our different agencies. So, Asta, how do you see companies like Avanti and also organizations like the NIST National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence partnering with CISA and, and being a part of the JCE? We don't claim to have all the good ideas. <laughs> we don't claim to have every good idea. In some cases, the work on JCE is, is what I would call basic construction, right? We're creating ecosystems that are building highways. That's what I like to call them. We're building highways. Where we had dirt, path, dirt paths before, we're building highways. And we're building checks and balances and toll roads, if you will, between those different environments so that we are very measured and calculated. But by no means do we think we have all of the ideas. And we certainly don't think we know every single flavor of problem that's existing out in the universe. So for us, the more we partner up and the more we invite companies like Ivanti to share what they know and understand about this space, to share with us their ideas of how they would tackle the space, it only informs us better. And in fact, those of you who might be listening to this podcast, including Ivanti, we just recently did an industry day with CISA uh, in anticipation of putting out an RFI, right? And what is the RFI? The RFI is, hey, it's, a, it's literally a request for information. The government mm -hmm. is asking, CISA is asking industry, hey, industry, how can you help us with this? What do you know about this from your challenges you've solved out in the commercial space that could help us solve this problem here within the government? You would probably agree and nod profusely if I said industry is far ahead of government in certain respects, because it is, right? You're, you're not necessarily held down by the bureaucracy that often hinders our ability to iterate fast. So why would we try to rebuild something that's already been built? Why not just learn from industry? Why not have them partner with us? And why not help them build this ecosystem? So that it's not just us building it by ourselves because we don't necessarily know all the best ways to build it. Yeah, absolutely. And Avanti would, would love to be a part of that. 
I'm sorry that we missed the the industry day, but certainly would welcome the opportunity to uh, to be a part of that. Oscar, this has been a great conversation, and I really appreciate your your sharing your thoughts and your comments and and the work that you're doing with the JCE. Are there any last comments that you want to add? This is really important work, and today this work is being done on coalition, a coalition that really is creating relationships between agencies. It is my hope that we fund this effort for the future so that we can continue to provide those returns, returns that we desperately need. And I'm excited that this is happening at the scale that it is, that Congress has noticed this problem. They have, have given us some degree of, of charge to go after this, and it's going to take a lot more of that coalition to get it through. And I hope that we can, we can find ways to, to partner up not just within government, but actually to not see us as so different. Government industry really need to solve this together as a challenge. And that's why I find it exciting. That's why I think the time spent in industry and now in government is really the perfect place to be. And I hope that others who have passion for this field will look at CISA because we certainly could use you and use the talent and certainly can use the knowledge and advice and counsel from industry as well on tackling this one. Well, that's great. Again, my sincere thanks to Asta Verma, Branch Chief of CISA's Cybersecurity Division, the United States Department of Homeland Security. My name is Bill Herod. I'm the public sector CTO for Avanti, a U.S.-based enterprise software company with a mission to help federal agencies discover, secure, manage, and service your IT assets and to enable the everywhere workplace. For more information, please visit us at avanti.com. That's I-V. A-N-T-I dot com. Thanks again, Asta.